0: 15 minutes of
1: flame, the hottest podcast on the internet. Little Clint Eastwood from Rawhide. Rowdy Yates, standing in for Jenny Lind, who was a very popular uh, opera singer back in the day.
2: She made the rounds, Jenny Lind. And, um, Apparently, she didn't show up.
1: But uh, Clint went out there and gave it a little Hollywood try. You know, Clint Eastwood is actually a pretty good piano player. And he's a big, big jazz aficionado. And um, jazz music plays a pretty significant
2: role in uh Eastwood's movies including the film that he did about uh Charlie Parker called Bird which is an okay film um Forrest Whitaker plays Charlie Parker and uh Clint Eastwood wanted to uh do a jazz movie and I actually think that
1: uh if you're looking for a jazz movie around midnight uh with um The director Bertrand Travonier is a better jazz movie. Just saying. Um, Music also shows up in
2: Play Misty for Me, where he plays a jazz musician on a local radio station in Carmel, where he is stalked by Jessica Savage. It's a really good movie, actually. Excuse me. But uh, I actually think he's composed some scores for some of his own movies, if I'm not mistaken. maybe tightrope is one of them. I don't know if you've ever seen tightrope, but it's kind of in the the dirty hairy vein and he plays
1: um a cop in New Orleans who is really into bondage,
2: right? He likes he likes to use handcuffs and uh tie women up, and especially women who, Will do it for money, and there's a killer on the loose who knows that that's what he does, and he winds up actually following his trail. The killer follows Clint Eastwood's trail around these women that he's had these, you know, bondage experiences with, and he kills these women in the wake of Clint Eastwood. So there's this weird thing going on in the movie tightrope where there's a Gemini effect with Clint Eastwood. Of course he is a Gemini. I believe his birthday is the 31st of, uh, of May. And so there's a strange, like criminal doppelganger of Eastwood. You, you find this a lot with Gemini's and shows up in their art. There's, there's interesting kind of doppelganger effects with, um, with Gemini's and I don't want the cat of the bag, but there's some very heavy Gemini influence in Larry David's chart. I'm going to do a breakdown of Larry David and the whole Seinfeld uh, cast. Well, most of them, the player, the main players, it's totally fascinating. Like how it all constellates and you can even see Larry David's character, literal character, figurative character come through in his chart. Totally fascinating. So Eastwood is a is a, a Gemini, and and part of the expression of the Gemini um, has to do a kind of a manifold um, depiction of the character himself. So what we're going to look at today are the first three Dirty Harry movies, which are Dirty Harry,
1: um, Magnum Force and the Enforcer. And they're very interesting in terms of like Clint Eastwood's portrayal as Dirty Harry. And then subsequently changing the character so that by the time you get through the end of the Enforcer,
2: Dirty Harry's image has been rehabilitated But there are also social social messages um, inside
1: of both of those movies that really are very different than the first
2: movie. I guess you could kind of go into problem, reaction,
1: solution with the first three films. But I'd like to think that in the first film, what the Dirty Harry character does is he hooks people. Who does he hook? He hooks men. Right? Like, most men are into Clint Eastwood movies. Goes without saying. And um, so they're hooking men. But by the time you get to the enforcer, kind of a very different
2: portrayal of Dirty Harry. Now, there's other movies after that in the Dirty Harry series, but those are the first three we're going to look at today. I'm going to show you how it, it breaks his character down, redeems his character, but at the same time, casts him in a very different kind of social light. If you're not paying attention, you really won't see it but that's what I'm going to attempt to do today with not a lot of materials at hand. So part of this is me going through, um, the three movies and some scenes on YouTube that I'm going to play. And then I'm going to break those scenes down and and talk about them. But as a character, as a director, Clint Eastwood is quite interesting. Um, when you read or listen to interviews of people who have
1: been on the set and, um, been a part of Clint Eastwood's movies. They're very economical.
2: This is one of the reasons why, now Clint Eastwood is is actually a good director. And But one of the reasons why he has been successful is how he gets his films done on time, on budget or under budget. And if you're a studio, that's a guy you want to to direct a movie. It's like, wow. Now, I know he's got his own production company. Uh, It's called Malpaso. And he's also doing deals with studios, producers. So he... um, There is money involved. He's not putting up his own money. There is money involved. So I think he's conscious of that. But it, it also goes into his jazz aesthetic. So I'll give you an example. He is the the complete opposite of somebody like Stanley Kubrick.
1: Stanley Kubrick, notorious for 50, 60, 70, 80 takes on a scene. Clint Eastwood's um, theory on filmmaking, theory and execution
2: is two takes. That's it. He'll do two takes on every scene, and he'll use one of those two takes. And you you think to yourself, well, geez, I mean, don't they want more to choose from? Wouldn't the limited amount of of takes hamper the quality of the movie? Not really. You look at a movie like The Unforgiven, are widely considered one of the best Westerns of all time whether it's the modern era or sort of the pre-modern era, right? So like post-1960 or pre-1960. There was one scene in that movie that had more than one take, two takes rather. It was the final scene where it was three takes. And that was suggested by the actor that Clint Eastwood was in the scene with.
1: And the other thing that Clint Eastwood never
2: does when it comes to casting people he never meets with them. He never meets with them. He'll, what, he'll, what, he, what he would do is he would get videotapes and watch the, you know, say, here, read. He would never interact with the actors. He would not interact with the actor until the actor showed up on the set. And again,
1: according to people that have worked on his films, very little direction from Clint Eastwood, he was
2: all about when he's directing the spontaneity of the moment, right? So he's going into a movie production like it is a piece of jazz, and what they come up with is what they come up with. Unlike Stanley Kubrick, who is directing movies like fucking Steely Dan, and Steely Dan is the is the Stanley Kubrick of rock music, by the way. Um, but that's not Eastwood at all, and that's why the net the the studios love him.
1: It, and there's this interesting theory that, um, when Clint Eastwood dies, the that's the beginning
2: of the end. Like I've seen this theory. I don't know where it comes from. I don't know where it was generated or when it was generated. But there's this theory that once Clint Eastwood passes on, like the fabric of the world begins to unravel. It's a very, it's, it's popped up a lot. And I, you know, I don't know what the credence is around that unless it's some kind of esoteric or occult credence. Um, and, and when you look around at who's been checking out lately, you have to ask yourself, how long is Clint Eastwood? you know, long for this world. He's been around a long, he's in his nineties and he's been a vitamin freak all of his life and a health freak most of his life, which is why he's experienced not just longevity, but productive longevity. I mean, this, the guy's doing things um, in his eighties as a director. Nobody, nobody else has really done before. He's acting and directing in his movies. <laughs> what, what, what did he, it was the, uh, the mule. He must've had a shit ton of fun doing The Mule. There's two scenes in The Mule where it's intimated that he had two threesomes. If you haven't seen The Mule, it's very entertaining. A True story, by the way, about an old guy who's running drugs from Mexico to California in his little pickup truck.
1: Fascinating movie and probably one of Clint Eastwood's last sort of, um, I don't know glory pieces where he sees
2: himself as kind of a virile still having some virility the old guy still got it right that's sort of the subtext of the mule Uh, but but it's worth watching and after that he's done a couple of other movies uh jewel which i've not seen but i do want to see and um i think he did another one not too long ago uh, but he's a really interesting director just as a director uh, he did the the movie about um the guys who were on the train in paris the soldiers he actually used the soldiers he used the he he used the he used the real life fucking characters <clears throat> to portray these three americans who take down um, a shooter, a Muslim shooter on a train in, in Paris. It's actually a pretty good movie, um, but that's Eastwood, right? He's going to take guys that have never acted before and he's going to basically use his two-take uh, technology and theory to, to create this movie. I've seen it a couple times. It's not a bad movie. I mean, you can tell they're not actors, but you don't know want it's okay because they're not supposed to be. They're supposed to be the guys that do this thing, right? It's a little corny in places, but it's shot really, really well. And that's another um, sort of hallmark of Eastwood's work. Like he knows exactly what he wants from light and everything, right? But again, unlike Kubrick, he's not gonna go to all these great lengths and pains to every painstaking detail. It doesn't mean he doesn't have details. He's not a sloppy director. It's just that he understands that there's an energy in the moment, right? Like Kubrick is, he's a classical composer, director, and Eastwood is jazz. He's first, second take guy. And um, clearly uh, an American institution with. A whole buttload of movies three of which we're about to go over here pretty quickly another side note for clint eastwood of course we all know that he ran for mayor of carmel why did he run for mayor of carmel well because he wanted to open an ice cream parlor and um said he wouldn't let him so what did he do ran for mayor because <laughs> he, he got his way Clint got his way. And there's some, you know, some unsavory details about his life. The High Strange with Sandra Locke. And nobody, I don't think people to this day, they can't really wrap their head around um, that relationship. She's just kind of weird. She's kind of weird and screechy and whiny. And like, she must have had a, she just must have like, Screwed him six ways to Sunday. Like that just, I think that's kind of, you know, she's got, you know, Sandra Locke's got that. She's got the crazy. She's a crazy chick appeal, right? And Clinton's a Gemini. And, you know, he probably liked her, her, a bit of her crazy at a certain time. But then he got tired of it. And then he wound up really like jamming her over the, the divorce and everything. And borderline abusive, by the way, And she and I think it took a lot out of her, like the whole divorce thing, and what she got and didn't get. And she he outlived her by a long shot,
1: right? So there's that side of Clint Eastwood, uh, who is not always a very nice guy, right? He's not always a very nice guy. And the other thing,
2: this is uh, most people that kind of study his life a little bit
1: also know that he would drive his pickup truck into Carmel clearly as Clint Eastwood and he would pick up women
2: in Carmel, like tourists and stuff as Clint Eastwood, right? Like he was not, he was not afraid. He would not shy away from uh, using his uh, star status in order to, satisfy his uh earthly needs right very interesting character and i think really one of the great uh, icons of of uh, our time filmmaking acting uh, from tv to to cinema and, you know whole variety and bandwidth of movies he starred in and directed there, there's really when he goes like again it's another um it's another Titan. Yesterday it was Tina Turner. Last week it was Jim Brown. And, uh, you know, who knows? Who knows where this generation, who knows who's next in this generation? And Eastwood is definitely one of the older ones. So we're going to get into some of the movies, the, the Dirty Harry movies here in a second. Let's let let's do a little, little true science.
1: Sure, science. He really became a star on uh, Rawhide. And then he went to Italy and he did the uh, spaghetti westerns. And uh, it was a game changer. Speaking of game changer, how about Sure Hemp Science? CBD
2: for your daily needs, whether it's for inflammation, uh, whether it's topical, where you can put it on your body and get some relief from pain, or whether it's the CBD, C, C, G, CGA hybrids that are available uh, through True Ham Science, um, this, is, this is your place. And
1: I, I'm just going to, again, tell you, you're not going to find better product And it's there, it's all great. The moon dust gummies, the moon dust and the
2: sleep gummies are in another league. Just a completely different league than other products out there. So I highly recommend everything that you can get here with those two um, items really at the top of the top of the mountain. And the 19 is really good too. 19 is excellent, but there's all kinds of uh, um, interesting goodies here. You have um, alcohol-based, non-alcohol-based, spagyrics. And if you're interested in finding out more about the products, you can make an appointment, and uh, it's here on the website. Chris will be able to walk you through it. Spend $100 or more. Type in 15 5 mins 15 mins and you'll get free goodies. So you get little bottles, not bottles this big, but smaller bottles that have a variety of CBDs that you can taste. Uh, some people get a couple of gummies thrown in. And you get to have the gummy experience. It's, it's always a little bit eclectic in the brick and brick, The brick a brick back bag. The brick a back bag that you get when you spend hundred dollars or more. So one five
1: mins, hundred fifty more, you get free shipping and always a thirty day money back guarantee. You guys remember Brock's candies? Remember that B-R-A-C-H-S, Brock's Candies. They'd always have them at the grocery store. brick a Brac. brick a Brac brought,
2: Brick-a-brack brought Bracks up. Say that fast three times. And the thing about Brock's Candies is that they always look better than they tasted. Except for the, uh, the butterscotch ones. The butterscotch ones were the, Bomb man, but you could only eat so many of them, or else you would just become overwhelmed with this butterscotch. But, um, they had the nougat ones, the, the variety of the hard candies. I think Brax had candy corn, right? I think they had uh, what was it, the uh, those those candy coated peanuts, what are they called Boston peanuts or something like that, right? Brax, it was always there. It was always ubiquitous and uh, a little blast from the past. All right, let's see what's going on with the uh, Chattoria. And then we'll get into some um some Clint Eastwood. You know what I like to do? I like to look at the chat on BoxCast because I get to play
0: chat God.
2: I get to play chat God. We got DJMC. What's going on, my man, TJ? Sony. Hey, Sony. Uh, one AI, you got to keep those doggies rolling. Yeah. Frankie Lane, man. Legend. Mr. Kia's in the house. Uncle Jed. Well, howdy folks. Well, howdy, Uncle Jed. How are you today? Uncle Jed. Here's Mark. And Wendy says the beautiful one. I've never heard Clint saying there's always a first year at some point in time. I'm swooning. You weren't the only one. How many of those, how many of those women do you think were faking it? I don't think they were faking it. What's going on, Fran? Good to see you, CC. No, he sang it. That was him. He may have lip synced and done it in the studio, but he sang it. That is his own voice. Yes.
1: Yes, indeed. It's there. Elvis and James Dean. Cliff can definitely Cliff can definitely serenade the doggies. Julie Moss is here. What's happening? Good to see you, uh, Robert. She knew about jazz. He's a big jazz head.
2: Lisa W, she joins us today. Gigi, love from Florida with
1: Gigi. She got me in the second bird. There's Marie. Hello, Marie. Marie in NYC. Oh, so we have? SP Dimples beaming in from another continent. We got a we got a time zone jumper. What's going on, SP? How you doing? KNS. Speaking of uh, Gemini, the S part is a Gemini. Let's see. What else do we have here? Uh, what happened to Sony? Am I missing something? I missed something with Sony.
2: My brother's best childhood friend, very, very sweet, gentle boy, well man, known of yours,
1: passed away. It's man, I'm telling you. It is in it is in the air and in the water right now. Hopefully I'm not being too uh too too literal. Watching on my T
2: on my TV on Rumble. Cool, good. I'm glad. Scenes of checking in. I'm glad it's happening. I'm glad you can see it on Rumble Live. That's awesome. Awesome, awesome. Harriet Bowie. Hey yeah. Uh, hey yeah, uh, hey yeah, uh, hey ya uh,
1: hey, yeah, uh, hey. Uh, hey uh. Double K, Catherine Kramer. What's going on, KK? Turned 65
2: yesterday. There we go. Happy birthday. Mr. Krimi, I'm going to play you a birthday
1: song. We're going to play Steve a birthday song later. He gets one. What are you, 65? You can retire now, apparently. Uh, Let's see. Who else do we have here? Nice
2: doom break. Yeah, we're going to have a little doom break today. But we are going to go through a little bit of uh, cinematic programming. Let's see. In the eighties, my go-to midnight show was Letterman. In the twenties, it's Robert Phoenix. <laughs> I kind of like that. I kind of like that. If you're in the if you're in the midnight hour, find me. I always had an aspiration to be Johnny Carson. That uh, there was a period of my life where that's who I wanted to be. I wanted to be fucking Johnny Carson and have a talk show. And that's why I love doing the Friday forecast when we get together in the Hill Country. I love it. I love talking to people from Chattaria and bringing them on as guests. I love it. It's one of my favorite things to do. And if I could do that kind of show with that kind of format four days a week, I'd be golden
1: in a live setting. If we make it through Apocalypse Weekend, it might just happen. Let's see. Who else do we have here? He, I just said that. Man, he and Sandra Locke did not part well. As, a D, as DJ. Let's see. Who else do we have here? You know, it was interesting. I used to, I told this story before. There is a period
2: where I really wanted to be uh, like a DJ at like, you know, raves and dance parties really wanted to, you know, it was like, there was a thing, right. It was San Francisco, but I was much more interested in um, sort of like the chill out side of things and ambient music and, At that time, what they called ethno ambient, which was um, electronic music, atmospheric with a bit of a tribal beat, right? Very into it. And every time I would do it live, it never fucking worked. It never worked. Every something went wrong, all the time, all the time. And I remember having this reading with this psychic, and she's and she said, "Well, you're just not you're not meant to do it live. You can do it on your own. You can make mixes
1: and all that stuff, and you'll be absolutely fine." You know what? She was right. Absolutely right. Uh, Let's see. Who else do we have here? In by 10, out by 5. That was Clint, man. Play Misty for me. That movie, Jessica Savage, is savage in that movie. I got a copy of um, Two Mules for Sister Sarah. But uh,
2: there's about seven movies. Got a great deal on these DVDs. And it's got like the Iger sanction, uh, two mules for Sister Sarah, um, play Misty for beguiled like like all the that kind of uh, over of Clint's career. I just got that a few weeks ago. Uh, let's see, the Bisu. What's happening, the Bisu? Good to see you,
1: Graham, Before Johnny Depp never Heard, Sandra Locke, and Clint. Yes. Yeah, they, they must have had some crazy crazy chemistry in the sack that's what I think I wonder how much Clint's character from tightrope got played out with Sandra Locke Tina Turner one of the giants absolute giant she became a naturalized Swiss citizen did you guys know that She's like, fuck it, I'm out of here. I'm out of here. I'm leaving America behind. That's where she lived out the rest of her days. Uh, let's see. I oh, hope Clint has retired from acting. No, you never know. Let's see. We got anybody else. Twenty is 21 twice. If you got it, use it. He certainly had it, and he did use it. He made no... Uh, Myra, hey, what's going on, Myra? Good to see you. Uh, let's see, what else do we have here? Equa's in the house. Hey, Equa. And uh, let's see. Mm-mm-mm-mm. My grandfather
2: always is Lisa W. My grandfather always had butterscotch brocks i was learning reiki and being attuned and started thinking about those butterscotch candies And realized it was my grandfather popping in stuff like that happens those butterscotch brocks were the bomb
1: the butterscotch brocks bric-a-brac were the bomb (laughs) (laughs) i'm sorry i'm having fun this morning I, you know what, sometimes the
2: shit just gets so thick and heavy that you just got to laugh, right? Like every day you need a good, like every now and then, every now and then you just got to turn off the doom spigots and fucking laugh, right? Today's a laugh
1: day. Today's a laugh day. Oh, I felt good. Okay. Oh, Janet is now officially Wendy's muse. Ooh,
2: I like that. Uh, Mark M. What's going on, Astro bro? Good to see you. I found out yesterday that my moon and sun are squared, and moon is trying with Neptune. That's why I'm always fighting myself on my head. Back in, Yeah, those those
1: sun-moon conundrums are challenging. That's also early programming from your mother and father. They may not have been on the same page. Uh, Sandra Locke has my mom's birthday. I hope your mom was a little more sane
2: than Sandra Locke was. He was. Sandra Locke was feral. That's that's how I would describe her. Oh, uh, well, let's see. Johnny was great to watch. Yeah, man. I tell you, I could not watch Jay Leno. Fuck. I could not watch Jay Leno. And in- as much as I think David Letterman is funny, he's a liberal shitbag, and I could. I, I, it's like, yeah, you know, I didn't get on the on the
1: Letterman train, and and Johnny picked Jay Leno almost despite Letterman, and the end of Johnny's career was really ugly.
2: There was a woman who was Jay Leno's agent. Just a nasty, nasty woman. And she was spreading these rumors that Arsenio Hall was killing Johnny in the ratings. It really wasn't true. But it kind of forced Johnny's hand. And Johnny um, passed on Joan Rivers because she said something about him that he didn't like. And Joan Rivers, Joan Rivers was more interesting than Jay Leno. Although I was never a huge Joan Rivers fan. I found her a little too abrasive. But I think she would have been more interesting than the jaw. You know, I don't know who could have taken over. It's like, you don't want to be that guy. Yeah, Leno was, he was the host of The Tonight Show for like, what, 20 years? 22 years. And I can't even remember sitting down and watching more than five minutes of Jay Leno at any point in time.
1: He never, he never, like, um, what was my thing? The Taurus, by the way,
2: Jay Leno. It's interesting. Both Jay Leno and uh, Jerry Seinfeld, they're both Tauruses, and they both have massive car collections. Gee, I wonder
1: why. Uh, let's see. Who else do we have here? Wendy is in full force today. Full force regalia love it johnny carson
2: uh, end of libra he's a final like 28 libra or 29 libra a bunch of scorpio in his chart his comedic johnny was a master of comedic timing he was a great interviewer i mean the tonight show in the 70s was the coolest for me the 70s the tonight show in the 70s was the coolest place to be it was like you know you'd have these people show up and you were like in on their club for a moment in time. Jack Benny, Bob Hope. Eventually, Johnny really detested having Hope on the show. Because Hope wasn't funny. And Hope could not improvise. And Johnny loved improvisers. That's why I always had Don Ripples on. He loved Don Ripples. Oh, what a hilarious guy. <laughs> you know, these reaction videos? It's really interesting and funny. Watching like black people who have never seen Don Ripples before. And they roll Don Ripples in his insult humor, where everybody gets filleted. You should see the looks on their faces. And at the end, they just think he's funny
1: as hell. It's really interesting. And the outlaw Josie Wales is where he and Sandra met. Ooh, yes, I remember that. Jessica was insane. She was she made she played a great crazy. Great crazy. Let's see what else we have. Oh, look at that. SP Dimples. Quoting some Tina Turner there. Lived in the same uh, town and Carl Young lived most of his life.
2: Glenn Close and Fatal attraction was Oh, Glenn Close was a next level, right? Like Jessica Savage
1: had the uh, emotional and psychological menace. Glenn Close had the physical menace. Because Glenn Close kind of looks like a dude. You
2: know, even the name is weird, right? Glenn Close. Like, what's that all about? She had physical menace. Like she looked like she could actually physically take on Michael Douglas. Whereas was Jessica Savage, a little frail, but, you know, kooky in the head. You know, Glenn Close
1: was a physical threat. That was the difference between those two. Were Eagles there? Uh, yes. Where Clint Eastwood performed with Richard Burton? The two did not get along. Gee, I wonder why. I wonder why. Love old-fashioned candy. My grandma always had coconut sandies. Oh, coconut candies. candies. Sandies are a cookie, right? So I love coconut. Spot on about the parental programs. Thank you, Gigi. That's that sun, moon square. It's where you get it. Uh, Juicy Fruit Gum. Juicy Fruit Gum is really good. I got got to say Juicy Fruit Gum was good. I chewed lots of gum back in the day. I chewed it all. You name it, I chewed it. I was kind of into that Beeman's gum and the clove gum. I kind of like that stuff. Uh, Leno was a Rolls Royce mechanic that made it big. There was a lot of conspiring. It's
2: really interesting. When you go into uh, J.J. Jimmy Walker world, he was friends with Jay Leno. He was friends with David Letterman. He was friends with, um, what's his name? Uh, I always get these guys mixed up. Robert Klein, David, the other guy, comedian, comedian
1: uh i always get those guys mixed up but they all kind of ran in the same circles and um letterman went to to carson to 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 pitch jay
2: leno jimmy walker talks about all about this stuff and they're they and you go back and and they used to get each other work right if you go back and you could actually see like Jay Leno on a couple of episodes of the Richard Pryor show and stuff like that. He's in the background. Really interesting time. Um, you know, what's interesting. Jimmy Walker said that the key to success in Hollywood or in the business for him was knowing lots of people and having a circle of creative friends because your friends would get you on shows. And it just makes a lot of sense. My father was first generation in Switzerland.
1: I'm 50% Swiss. Always had an affinity for things Swiss. Interesting. All right, Gigi. See you later. Have a good day. Thanks for being here. Oh, uh, let's see. Tonight's show was great. Seinfeld is Capricorn. Oh, really? I thought he was a Taurus. I don't know about that. If I'm wrong, I'm happy. I'm happy to admit it. He's a Taurus. I know my signs. I know my signs, bro. Jerry Seinfeld, born April 29th, 1954. It's not a victory lap, by the way. I knew he was a Taurus. But thanks. Probably, he probably has something in Capricorn. Um, I'll tell you who is a Capricorn. Julie Louise Dreyfus is a Capricorn. You know, little six degrees of separation. Let's see. Micro Blue is here. Beth Berry's here. What's going on, Beth? Oh, Rickles, it
2: was an acquired taste. I remember. A couple of years ago, I didn't really like Don Rickles and I dosed on Rickles. I kept watching all these videos. I'm like, the guy's a fucking genius. He's
1: a genius. To me, Don Rickles is one of the best improvisers. I didn't like Dick Cabot. I didn't like him. I would actually put Mike Douglas above Dick Mike Douglas was a very underrated
2: interviewer. Gigi says, I think Glenn Close is Robin Williams. Oh, interesting. Oh, Rickles and Dangerfield were unhinged on Carson. He gave him, he gave both those guys so much latitude. Dangerfield was too sweaty. That's because he was high as fuck on cocaine. Rodney Dangerfield was a heavy, heavy (laughs) cocaine. That's why he is too sweaty. Um.
1: Chicago City Well, that's where Juicy Fruit is from. Right? It's a Wrigley gun. Isn't that right? Let's see. Juicy Fruit and Afro Sheen. That sounds like those are lyrics, Aqua. I enjoyed visiting Chicago pre Obama. Great city. Pre pre Obama. Great city. Double R Raven Rain in the house. It's raining.
2: It's raining in here. All right. I got to the end of the chat. Let's, let's get into some Clint Eastwood. All right. Let's look at, um, let's look at Dirty Harry. I'm going to play the
1: trailer for Dirty Harry. And um, we're going to kind of break it down a little bit. This is the first of the, uh, the Dirty Harry cycle. Okay, so let's see. We got one that's 320. Let's play the long one, 320. And um, a little uh, Dirty Harry trivia. Dirty Harry's partner in this movie is an actor by the name of Rennie
2: Santoni. He went to the same high school at the same
1: time as my mother. And apparently, he kind of had a thing for my mother. Believe it or not. But my mother did not have a thing for Rennie. Here we go. This is the trailer
0: for Dirty Harry. Let's do it. This is about a movie about a couple of killers. Harry Callahan. And a homicidal maniac. The one with the badge is Harry. Oh! Reasons they called him Dirty Harry, and he kept inventing new ones. Don't pass out of yet. No, 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 no. That was a pretty good pinch you made yesterday. The chief was pleased. He was, huh? Yeah, he really was. He wanted me to tell you, well done. I tell you how deeply moved I am. How do you like that? I pass along a compliment. You could at least be a little bit polite. It might not even kill you to say thanks. <laughs> Much rather say thanks to a raise. Hey, Harry, check communications. Something from Chicago. A gun knife. I'm putting somebody with you. Well, you know what happens to the guys that I've worked with. Dietrich's still in the hospital with a bullet in his gut, and Fanducci's dead. Now, you're working with Gonzalez or you're not working. Now, that's straight from the fifth floor. You got it? I know what you're thinking. Did he fire six shots or only five? Well, to tell you the truth, in all this excitement, I've kind of lost track myself. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and would blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself one question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Doesn't it drive your wife crazy? Nope. You she got used to it? No, she never did, really. Well, what then? She's dead. Oh, please forgive me driving home late one night and the drunk crossed the center line there's no reason for it really i'm so sorry it's okay look i want you to tell chico that i understand you know him quitting i think he's right this is no life for you too why do you stay in it then i don't know i really don't send inspector Callahan in Mr. Mayor, Inspector Callahan. All right, let's have it. Have what? Your report. What have you been doing? Oh, well, for the past three quarters of an hour, I've been sitting on my ass in your outer office, waiting on you. Damn it all, Harry, that's the mayor you're talking to. Clint Eastwood. Detective Harry Callahan. You don't assign him... Stop! ...to murder cases. You just... (laughs) ...turn him loose. all
2: right so that was the trailer for dirty harry and you know that gives us enough to kind of work on in terms of his character in the movie um one of the things that you come away with from the first dirty harry movie is that he plays
1: by his own rules I mean, you saw the the uh, the interaction there with the mayor,
2: also known as Dean Wormer, uh, with John. What's his name? I forget his last name, but he plays the mayor uh, and was also the dean of the college in Animal House, Dean Wormer. Uh, so that's you know, Harry breaks the rules, right? He is the the epitome of sort of this 1960s um, iconoclast. As a result, right, Like, and if you look at his character, he's got a suit and a tie, he's got a a magnum, rifle, you name it, right? He is this weird kind of synthesis of somebody who really abides and stands up for law and order, but has to deal with procedure and the red tape of the political machine, district attorneys, right? The 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 um uh what's the what is it the uh Scorpio killer. They name him Scorpio, so he's kind of a take on uh the uh the zodiac killer, right? That's they're kind of playing with it. And uh Harry finds out where he lives and gets all this evidence, but he doesn't have a warrant, right? So he has to go through the D.A. who is basically saying, I can't accept this. You got to let him go. Right. And he's like pissed. He can't understand why um, his hands are tied. By a lot of the uh, procedure and by. These uh, pernicious
1: things like warrants, right? Because he makes moral adjustments along the way
2: that the machine can't do like, so Harry Callahan
1: is this kind of raw and unbridled conscience and people can
2: identify with that. Right. So in a lot of ways, it's really conservative, but on the other hand, he is the epitome in some ways
1: of being free and, slightly anarchic and there's this kind of undertone
2: of the counterculture with the character of dirty Harry because he doesn't play by the system's rules right so he is in a lot of ways kind of the you know the apotheosis of this image of Clint Eastwood as an antihero. Because he's a hero, but he's not always somebody that you can warm up to. In fact, there's a there's a scene in the in the movie where he's trying to find the the Zodiac, the Scorpio killer, and he actually is a bit of a peeping tom, right? He's watching this window because he thinks that that's where it is, and he's he's watching this woman take off her top, and you know. So, which is very interesting, very kind of voyeur and Gemini-like, right? Like, But then he has, you know, he has these guys that are walking down the alley. You know, it's a different time because they're like, what the fuck are you doing? You pee-pee. They start to beat him up and then his partner shows up. Um,
1: So he's not a, he's not really, he's kind of unsavory. Like Dirty Harry's kind of unsavory. You know, he's, he's got kinks, a little bit of kinks.
2: Uh, he doesn't mind shooting people up, shooting scenes up, right? He'll, within the bounds of the law, he'll take the law into his own hands. And that's the imprimatur that we have in the first movie, right? Like, that is the Dirty Harry that most people identify with. And if you're a guy... I remember the first time I saw Dirty Hair was with my parents at the drive. And I was like, this is a fucking badass movie. This is a fucking bad." I love this movie. It, ha- it had it all, right? It had action. It was shot in San Francisco. We lived in the Bay Area. Kind of knew all the locations. And the guy that played the Scorpio killer was a, just a total freak. And he didn't like it. He didn't like playing that role. And Clint Eastwood actually was the guy who was in charge of casting him because he had seen him <clears throat> do theater down in Monterey and he thought he was really good. But the guy didn't like playing a psychopath. And he really, the dude in the movie really troubled this dude. And Clint Eastwood, a typical Gemini fashion, kind of poked him. Now, Eastwood did not direct Dirty Harry. That would be Don Siegel who directed a number of his movies. And Don Siegel... Uh, is also the director of the invasion of the body snatchers very talented director and there's a scene in um is it uh i think it's high plains drifter which is part of that eastwood bundle that i got uh there's a scene where he walks past the graveyard and on the tombstone or a couple tombstones you'll see the name Uh, Don Siegel, and then you'll see the name Sergio Leone on the tombstones. And that was Clint Eastwood's way of paying homage to the two directors
1: who had really influenced him in terms of um, acting and filmmaking. And I think, was that the first film he directed? I think it might have been. I think High
2: High Plains Drifter is just a wild ride of a movie man there's like a lot of supernatural undertones with high plains drifter the other thing that's interesting about eastwood is that there are at least two movies i think there are three if i'm not mistaken where he plays a minister somebody that is like you know kind of a quote-unquote man of god and i'm like why does he do that right that's his opposite sign sagittarius And um, he
1: does it in Pale Rider. And he also does it in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot at the beginning of the movie. And I think there's at least one more film where he kind of plays with that
2: role and persona. It's just an interesting aside. So we've sort of set the character, right? We've set the character for the first Clint Eastwood movie. If you're a dude... And you identify with Clint Eastwood and the Westerns and a time where there's, I mean, this is in the 70s and there's, you know, there is a kind of a sense of lawlessness. You're coming out, we're coming out of things like
1: um, the 60s and um, the weathermen and, um, you know, that
2: whole kind of weird, Uh, subversive protest scene in California. There's, you know, the Zodiac Killer. I mean, we've gone down. I mean, it's a time where there seems to be kind of more lawlessness and anarchy that's kind of floating around. Here comes Clint Eastwood and he's going to take care of it, right? So people identify with that. like, well, fucking somebody's taking care of it. Even if it's a goddamn movie, somebody's taking care of it. And they identify with the fact that he is not politically correct. That's the other part of Dirty Harry. Well, in uh, Magnum Force, that is going to change. Um, If I'm not mistaken, John Milius and Michael Chimino helped out with some of the dialogue. Dirty Harry. That scene with the gun, I think that's John Milius who wrote that that scene. So Eastwood liked working with them so much that he hired them to write the script for Magnum Force. And so behind me is Clint Eastwood um, over my right shoulder and David Soul, who would later become more well-known as uh, uh, Hutch in starsky and hutch which was a very popular tv series back in the 70s a cop show you guys know that right and like clint eastwood he would also have a bit of a career as a singer he, he had a top 40 hit don't give up on me baby don't give up on me baby yeah i bet you that could qualify as yacht it has got kind of a yacht vibe although i'm not sure it's going to make the yacht this summer
1: So why don't we do this? Let's take a quick look at the trailer for Magnum Force. And let's see, I hope they have a long trailer like the last one, 214,
2: 206, 210. All right, this one's a little bit shorter. Two fifty. Here we go. It's the full trailer, and then I'm gonna play an individual scene here. And this is where they begin
1: to sculpt Clint Eastwood and the message. So let's let's uh, pay attention here.
0: Eastwood is back in full force, as Dirty Harry in Magnum Force. Jimmy Riley, big-time racketeer. Lou Guzman, narcotics king. J.J. Wilson, well-known pimp. There are killers on the loose dressed like cops. And they always use a magnum. You and your partner are back on homicide. It's a little dramatic, isn't it, Briggs? Not your usual style. It's meant to be, Callahan. Look, this thing might be bigger than even we think it is. This is the cream in the bottle, Callahan. Someone's trying to put the courts out of business. Look, you work with Briggs on this, Callahan. call him Dirty Harry, and he likes to do things his way. He's always around where the action is. In 24 hours, Harry manages to cover a stakeout, to stop a robbery, and to be a good neighbor. Hi. Oh, hi. You're the cop who lives upstairs. That's right. Killers that look like cops are after Harry because he knows too much. Whenever there's trouble, they always call in Harry, because they know he'll do the job. It's all in a day's work for inspector Harry Callahan.
2: Okay. So that gives you kind of a backdrop of the movie and I'm going to play another scene from the movie here in a minute. And essentially what happens is that there are guys in the force that out Callahan,
1: (laughs) Callahan, right? So inside of the uh, SFPD, there are a group of
2: kind of rogue police officers who take the law into their own hands,
1: and it's very interesting. Sort of the the uh, the intimations
2: of what these guys represent. When I mean, you break them down, you have David Soul. Um, you have um, what's his name, uh, Tim play Johnny quest um, was also in animal house. So another animal house person, Tim Matheson. And I forget the third cop, but I think there's about four of them. And
1: the other guy's kind of notable too. Um, and they're all white. Okay. They're all white.
2: And they, so this is also happening kind of around the time Where you have this guy like Dan White emerge from the SFPD, known as the White Knight, right? He goes in and kills, theoretically kills, uh, George Moscone and and Harvey Milk, right? So it's weird how the movies sort of represent slices of time and historical characters. So you have kind of the Dan White, the White Knight in. magnum force and you have the zodiac killer scorpio killer and in uh, dirty harry but in this movie
1: um there's this kind of inversion that's taking place and this
2: movie is kind of a turning point movie for the development of harry callahan so what they're doing is like yeah he
1: still is this Kind of hard, I'm going to do it my way, cop. But by creating
2: a group of vigilantes inside of the force, they're actually rehumanizing Dirty Harry. Like by, con- by contrast and comparison, like he's not those guys, right? And those guys, for the most part, are also clad in leather and uniforms. So when you, when you get, you know, and they're very different than just your average beat cop or guy riding around um, in a squad car. Like they actually look more like centurions and soldiers because of that. They have to wear a helmet and they have to wear leather. Right. And there's all, you know, there's, there's this kind of interesting sort of weird backdrop that is almost fascistic. It's no, it's no coincidence that they're motorcycle cops, because the motorcycle cops are the ones that are ones that look most like, most like soldiers.
1: So now we have this group inside of the police department that is number one, white. They're all white, right? Number two. If there's anything, if there's any outfit inside the police force
2: that's going to resemble a soldier or, let's say, a stormtrooper, it's going to be a motorcycle cop, right? So they're white, they have have the costumery that sets them apart, and
1: then number three, they're just going to take the law into their own hands which again is kind of a theme that will come up in other movies like Death Wish with Charles
2: Bronson and sort of, you know, spurring this sort of vigilante culture you get Bernhard gets in New York city. Um, It's also kind of part of this, right. But the idea with, with Magnum Force is to move Eastwood's character kind of off of the slightly unhinged anarchic and anarchic right in more towards the middle by degrees for this other group that shows up. And not that I am here, like seeing a commie under every bed, right. But it does have a very interesting um, kind of tone, where they're starting to demonize a particular group, right? But it's okay because Harry Callahan's there. And so you still have kind of a, you know, if you if you identify with that character, right? And what I mean by identify is, well, he, well, he kind of looks like me. He's got the same skin tone and, you know, the whole nine yards, right? But you still identify with him. But then there's this other group which you would identify with a lot less. And this is part of like what happens with, with dirty Harry here. So there's a theme going on, right? They're, they're, they're isolating now this group, right? And when you look at Milius and Chimino, these guys are really like from the sixties, right? That's whatever you think of, you know, their, their country, Chimino would go on to both right and direct Thunderbolt and Lightfoot that, Dirty Harry would be. It's a great. That Thunderbolt Lightfoot is a great movie. Like, there are some weird fucking themes in Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Like, that's when Clint Eastwood shows up at the beginning of the movie, and he's the preacher. Jeff Bridges is in it, George Kennedy. George Kennedy, a long-time uh, Clint Eastwood. And then the other guy who is George Kennedy's buddy, I always forget his name, but he's in a lot of Clint Eastwood movies, too. Um,
1: anyway, let's play another scene from... Uh, Magnum Force. Uh, this is um, for us or against us. So here we go: for us or against us. This is you're gonna you're gonna get kind of the the gist of the uh, the breakdown between these. This one guy, Callahan, Dirty Harry, and this rogue group of vigilantes who just happen to look a certain way. All right, here we go.
0: Do you have any idea how hard it is to prosecute
2: a cop? Here's your Centurions.
0: You heroes have killed a dozen people this week. What are you going to do next week? kill a dozen more. What you guys are all about, being heroes? All our heroes are dead. We're the first generation that's learned to fight. We're simply ridding society of killers that would be caught and sentenced anyway if our courts worked properly. We began with the criminals that the people know, so that our actions would be understood. It's not just a question of whether or not to use violence. There simply is no other way, Inspector. You, of all people, should understand that. Either you're for us or you're against us. I'm afraid you've misjudged me.
2: So you're either for us or against us. Where did you hear that?
1: George Bush. You're either with us or against us. You think they saw Magnum Force? Of course they did. So, well, I think this is a good movie.
2: Where I think Magnum Force fails is the potential for an internal conflict with his character, Dirty Harry, because he's looking at a reflection, a dark reflection of who he is. And I don't think he wrestles with that enough, right? And so what happens is that it just becomes this polarization. And again, it's a Gemini thing. He's playing with the Gemini theme here. But, but and there's this polarization, like these are the forces that are outside of himself. And the, and the David soul character says, you of all people, Right? Because you're the guy who lives by these rules. Well, why don't you play by these rules with us? And you know, we'll basically, you know, play the role of Judge Dredd and we'll just we'll just take the shit out on the street, we'll take the garbage out. And I, I don't think Callahan wrestles with that enough in the movie.
1: If he did, I think it would have been better. But his character in a lot of ways is well kind of two-dimensional, right? I guess it's up for the audience to try to resolve the moral dilemma.
2: But really what's happening is that they're moving, they're redeeming his character by creating this um, extre- these extreme characters for him to define what law and morality are against them, right? So that's how they kind of redeem him. But also pay attention to what appears to be, in some ways, kind of a demonization of our, a particular group. We're like, the you know, we're the new generation, right? We're, we're the new, you know, we're the new white fascists on the street. And we're taking
1: the trash out, right? And this is what is being portrayed here. Okay, so let's, we, we have, we got... Uh, A few minutes left. All right, let's quickly move into the last of the Dirty Harry Trinity, which is the Enforcer.
2: And this is where he has Tyne Daly as his partner. And it's the introduction of a woman who will ultimately wind up being very integral to harry callahan's investigation job and life in the movie and of course there's some interesting banter inside of it where she has to prove her worth but again right so now we've just seen that for all intents and purposes they're kind of demonizing white guys like radical white guys who want to be vigilantes but they're kind of you know if we were to look at that they were to redo um magnum force today it could be done right it could be totally done you might want to recast dirty Harry, obviously but that would be a movie today that they could actually redo because they could play that part up they could play that theme up and it would be right in alignment with our times right okay
1: so let's take a look at um the enforcer
0: san francisco sprawling picturesque dynamic eighth largest cosmopolitan city in the united states like every big city it has its share of crime and violence god San Francisco is the only city with a cop like Dirty Harry. What are you gonna do? Give him one. Clint Eastwood is the enforcer. The mayor of this pig city has been taken prisoner of war by the people's revolutionary strike force. What do you want? You. What are you protecting these people for? You know how many they've killed? sacrifices have to be made mister you got the wrong number boy we don't deal in violence what do you deal in waiting for all you white honkies to blow each other up so we can move right on in
1: you don't give up do you sometimes not you I'll
0: tell you what you are to me little man you're just a maggot who sells dirty pictures he's got a lady partner this is a first for him now I want you very slowly to put down that weapon and then on the deck and spread your legs are you kidding me First, there was Dirty Harry, then Magnum Force, and now Eastwood is back as the Enforcer, the Dirtiest Harry.
1: See that subliminal? Or the not-so-subliminal? Right there, see that? Women. Behind the Red Curtain. Right. It's kind of interesting. Like they could have used the men's room, or the door could have had nothing on it at all. That's what you call an embed. And this is a lot of what the enforcer is about women. So we start off with Dirty Harry, the anti hero that well, all men can identify with that
2: motherfucker, right? Got a gun, shoots, gets it on, you know? Then we go into Magnum Force, and it's like, well, I'm not those guys. Those guys are bad dudes, right? And redefines himself, you know, slightly left of the hardcore centurion fascists inside of the
1: SFPD, right? Right? He's not that. And by the way, you shouldn't identify with that either.
2: All right? Don't identify with those guys. And I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. In some ways, that's the message. So then in the next movie, of course, he's got a female partner. That's a first for him. You see what they're doing? They're, They're kind of like sculpting these men along the way with the Dirty Harry films. So but by, by the time you're done with The Enforcer, you're like, oh, gee. You know, we live in a more fair and just world and there's equality and equity and boy, and Dirty Harry is not a bad guy. Even Dirty Harry isn't as dirty as those guys. Even Dirty Harry, who is a misogynist, finds a woman that he can respect and have as a partner. And they can experience equality together. I mean, and I know I'm oversimplifying these things, but these are the messages that they're conveying. And what they do is they hook you with the first movie. And then they kind of move you along, kind of massage you. And at the same time, I also feel like there's a commercial aspect of this so that they can evolve the character. Like the character has to evolve in some ways. There's only kind of a couple different directions the character can go. Can either go up or down. And in the second movie, he goes
1: up because he, he defines himself or redefines himself against the um, street-level morality of these cops. Now, the other direction,
2: he's going to have gone down. right? He could have gotten dirtier. The dirty Harry and the dirtier Harry. There's a chance you, you might lose people, number one. Number two, the time between movies, like things happen rapidly. And so the social climate can change very quickly too. So these moves were in as much as they were, I believe, having fingerprints of social engineering in them. They're also there to keep the franchise alive, right? Because the next one is violent, but it's justified violence against a group that is worse than he is. Okay. We like that. Man, we like that. He took care of people that took the law into their own hands. You get to make another movie. Oh, look at this one. He's got a female partner. We like that one too. Man, Dirty is becoming really interesting and complex. You get to make another movie. That's part of it. Don't underestimate the underlying massaging that's going on with the audience and yes they are kind of part and parcel of the side of the times but the enforcer what's interesting
1: about the enforcer while it doesn't completely um, copy the quote-unquote
2: radical terrorist group known as the uh, american indian movement aim which took over alcatraz there's some uh, kind of connection to it, right? So again, there's these social backdrops and themes that are kind of concurrent with San Francisco and the Times that do get played out in the movies. So I just think it's fascinating how they take people for a ride, you know, and and especially men, right? With that character. And then of course, there's more Dirty hairy movies as they uh, kind of go down line. I think the worst is... And I've never seen it. I don't want to see it. It's The Rookie with Charlie Sheen. I've heard it's really bad. Some of the others are... are um, tie Rope is a freaky movie. And it's not Dirty Harry, but kind of feels like Dirty Harry in some ways. Now, that is Dirty or Harry. There's Dirty Harry, then there's dirtier Harry, and that's in Tie Rope. Okay. Um, that's going to end it for today. So, look, a little bit of a break from the Doom and uh got to check out some some old cinema and i hope some of these ideas are the very least um interesting to you and kind of kick it around and i do think that movies do have in many cases underlying messages that are there to kind of massage people and move the needle we looked at um The Magnificent Seven, and that is a totally socialist identified with the oppressed movie. That's exactly what that is. We looked at Slapshot and how Slapshot looks and feels like a really funny, you know, ultimate sports jock movie, and it's not, right? That is one of the most uh, egregious broadsides against men, period, end of story. Right. And we looked at that. And so these things go on in movies and there's, there's, there's more, there's more movies with some of these messages. Um, A lot more of these movies with messages. Maybe the next one we get into is the movie, The Arrival. Um, The one with Emily Blunt. There's some very interesting messages in The Arrival. Okay. Um, I'm out of here. So tomorrow we will have the Friday forecast. Um, You guys can show up, you can hang out and chat. Do what you do. It will, but I will not be live with the Friday Forecast. I already recorded the show, did it today with Russ, and um, you'll, but you'll be able to have that experience. I'll program it. It'll be through Streamyard, and you'll be able to participate just like you normally do on the Friday Forecast. And the show will end when the video ends. Okay. All right. That's it. Thanks for being here. Don't forget to support our, our friend Chris over at Truem Science. And uh, use your head in order to discern what's real, your heart too simple to, to what's possible.
1: So I'll take a big, deep breath for this weekend and just exhale. Chattari, you're the best. Take care. Bye for now.